With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts, and that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now on with the show. I do genuinely believe that we will reach a point that everyone looks back on 2020 and says, what on earth were we thinking? And they will feel the same puzzlement that I do. By the time we reach something like 2024, the damage done by these lockdowns is going to be baldly apparent. Nobody's going to be talking about the disease anymore. They're going to be talking about what was done to this country. And there will be hell to pay at the ballot box. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined once again by Lionel Shriver, Lionel is a novelist and columnist. She is the author of 15 novels, the most recent of which is The Motion of the Body Through Space. She has won numerous awards and widespread praise for her fiction. One critic says that if Jodie Pico has her finger on the zeitgeist, Shriver has her hands around its throat. Lionel is also a commentator and observer. She writes a column for The Spectator, and she has become known for the brave stands she takes against wokeness, censorship, lockdown, and other forms of modern madness. And as of today, Lionel is also the first person to have appeared on this podcast three times. Okay, Lionel, so obviously the first thing I want to ask you about is the huge events in the United States, which will have global repercussions, and particularly about how you voted. I wouldn't normally ask someone how they voted, but you've written about it already. And I, I think confess. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's fair to say you were a reluctant Biden supporter. So I just wonder if you could explain what made you opt for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. What was your thinking about what that might help to achieve? Well, I've never been a Trump supporter. It's not so much that I think he's terribly immoral, not that I think he is especially moral. (laughs) Narcissists usually aren't. But I think he's incompetent. That doesn't mean I wouldn't give him some credit for a handful of achievements while he's been president. I don't feel that I have to demonize everything that he's done. 
I'm broadly supportive of his desire to control American immigration. I don't think he's been entirely competent in the way that he has gone about achieving that. And we've still got really high levels of illegal immigration. I don't think that the wall is probably the best way to go about it. But, you know, I think that those uh, series of recognitions of Israel and the Middle East were wholly productive. And, you know, that's just a couple of areas where I would share some of his broader policy goals, although I think that his broadest policy goal is just to stay in power. Hmm. And, you know, in, in the same way, Biden concerns me in some of these areas. I think Biden wants to effectively bring in an amnesty, which is uh, going to be a big pull factor for more people getting into the country illegally. Uh, and I'm very worried about Biden and the coronavirus because, uh, you know, all the noises he's making are very pro-lockdown. And I, I don't, actually don't know whether the U.S. federal government has the power to bring in a national lockdown, but I'd rather not find out. <laughs> and he's very fanatical about masks, which we may talk about at greater length at some point. But I regard this as largely a because there's very little scientific evidence of their efficacy. It's superstitious behavior. I'm also worried about Biden and money. You know, he's going to want to spend a lot of it. And we've already spent a lot of it. But in the big picture, I think that Trump does a lot of damage to the uh, United States international reputation. I think he's untrustworthy. He's erratic. He doesn't know how to talk. And I think that that bothers me personally more than it would a lot of other people. There are some American supporters of his who find his inarticulacy charming as a, it's a sign of authenticity. And I find it rather a sign of cognitive decay. I've listened to some of the interviews he gave back in the 1990s, and he wasn't that incoherent. You know, he spoke in complete sentences, and he had a vocabulary of larger than 100 words. Mm -hmm. So I think that his inability to speak is a sign that he's not at his best. And I also think that one of the major roles that a president performs is, is talking. He should be in order. And that's one area where someone like Obama, whatever his other failings, um, he excelled at it. And I miss it. Obviously, I want to come back to the question of Biden's problems and the problems with a Biden administration, and particularly in, re in relation to COVID and lockdowns and masks. But just sticking with Trump for the moment, because he's on his way out, or he's potentially on his way out, maybe he'll never leave. But I wanted to ask you, your position on Trump is actually quite unusual because it's rational. And that makes it quite distinctive because it seems to me that there are two choices in relation to Trump. Either you are a fanboy who must cheer everything he does, however stupid it is, or more commonly, you suffer from Trump derangement syndrome and you think he's like Hitler, if not worse, and he's the worst thing that ever happened to Western politics. Whereas I think the position you've pushed forward over the past few years and the things that you've written has actually been much more reasoned. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, basically a, a, a double-barreled question. Firstly, why do you think Trump gave rise to such Trump derangement syndrome? And secondly, how do you think these people will survive 
without Trump. I mean, they defined their whole political outlook in relation to Trump, essentially, and surely they will be fairly lost when he goes. Well, on that last point, that's one of the reasons I want Trump out, <laughs> right? I mean, Trump was a great gift to the left mm. and not so much energized as crazed the left and made their movement feel uh, much more like a crusade. Yeah. Right. And from the start, they were out to save the Republic. And they, they have tried to portray him as a demagogue, someone who wants to become president for life. And yeah, lots of comparisons to fascist leaders. And I think that's completely over the top. I mean, fr frankly, Trump doesn't care enough about his own agenda to install a proper conspiracy theory. He'd, <laughs> he, he'd have been perfectly happy just yeah. to be reelected. He's too incompetent. Yeah. And he, it's, it's, he's too incompetent. And it, it is also a matter of just not caring. He doesn't care enough about other people. And he demonstrates this at every point. What he likes most about being president is, is campaigning. He likes being in front of large crowds. Now, I realize that gives him a kind of Nuremberg-ian veneer, which the American media has taken advantage of. But it's really just about, about his own ego. And that's a rather small thing at the end of the day. And I'm tired of left-wing hyperventilating. <laughs> uh, you put the Democrats in power and, you know, it's like, okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Do your stuff. And when you've been in this quasi-religious fervor, getting what you want is the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> so, you know, I, I want to punish the left by putting them in power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that said, I have some hopes that Biden will check the left a little because it is important to remember that he was elected as a centrist yeah. and not as a hard left social justice warrior maniac. I think that's great. Voting against Trump to punish the left seems to me to be a perfectly logical position to take. Have you ever entertained the argument put forward by some people that Trump, Trump was treated by many of his voters as a kind of wrecking ball against wokeness, a wrecking ball against an out-of-touch establishment. And I mean, one of the phenomenal things about this election is that so many people voted for Trump, despite the unholy confluence of forces that were lined up against Trump, big money, big academia, big media, big tech, and so on. So there is there was something rebellious about the 71 million people who said, well, we're still going to vote for the evil orange man. Do you have any time for the argument that for a significant section of American society, even if they recognize that Trump was imperfect, incompetent, difficult, problematic, that they saw him as a necessary corrective to the way in which politics had been going? Well, as I've written in my Spectator column this week, I think the big news of the election is not Biden winning, but Biden winning by such a teeny weeny little margin. Mm -hmm. In the swing states, the differential is 73,000 votes. 73,000 votes went the other way. And remember how big this country is, 330 million people. Then Trump would have won. He came really close to winning. Now, it's true that the popular vote has a, a larger differential of about 4 million votes, but 71 to 75, eh, 
not very big, not very big at all, especially considering all that is wrong with that man. So one of the things I got so tired of during his administration, which I compulsively now talk about in the past tense, is just listening to how terrible he was. And I found that condescending. You know, you read the New York Times over and over again, and every single column is telling you what a terrible man he is and, you know, how little conscience he is and what a narcissist he is. You know, everything that's wrong with Trump is writ large the moment he opens his mouth. I didn't need to be told what was wrong with him. (laughs) And and furthermore, these people are only talking among themselves. So what is it? It's kind of masturbatory. What is the point of all these pieces? And I'm going to be really glad to see the back of them. Yeah. But the fact is that while you don't get that impression when you listen to most of the mainstream American media and even outside the country, even here, the United States is still quite conservative. And that's what this vote means. You know, the the surprisingly large number of minorities who voted for Trump, despite being told by the likes of the New York Times over and over again that he's a racist. That's astonishing. Mm. This was such an unworthy candidate and still drew nearly half the country. Imagine what a candidate who was worthy and represented some of the same positions could do. And that should make the Democrats very nervous. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And okay, speaking of the Democrats and what this all means for them, I think one of the things that's most striking about Biden, and you've written about this, is the extent to which his physical frailty might reflect or give rise to a political frailty too. So you've asked the question about how well he can hold the line against the lunatics on his own side, the extremists, the woke people. And I would even include Kamala Harris in that to a certain extent. She has her pronouns in her Twitter biography, which I think tells you a lot about a person. So was one of your concerns when you cast your vote for Biden, and you've just explained very well why you did that, was one of your concerns that he, even though he was elected as a centrist, even though he was elected partly to make American politics boring again, that he won't have the capacity to stand up to those extremist elements in the woke elites, which seem to me to be fairly rampant in parts of the Democrat Party at the moment. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of uh, his holding the line on the hard left agenda in his speeches. I mean, I like the fact that he speaks up for unity his line about uh, reaching across the aisle, which was not popular with the left at all. In fact, it, earlier in the, during the primaries, it got him in terrible trouble because it's got, oh, my, you can't reach across the aisle to racists, <laughs> cooties. But I haven't heard a lot of his dismissing the woke agenda or, you know, speaking up for free speech, for example. I never hear him do that. So that bugs me. Hmm. And I'm very anxious about the appointment of Kamala Harris as VP. I don't like the reasons she was chosen. Now, I'm not going to pretend she's in any way incompetent. She's clearly competent. She's a decent orator, though I wish she would stop laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Someone someone pointed out to me that this business of constantly smiling and laughing is very California. And I think that's well observed. But, you know, let's be honest. She wasn't chosen for, for her competence. She was chosen for her genes. Yeah. And I don't like that. In fact, I didn't like the fact that Biden announced at the very outset 
when he got the nomination that he was going to choose a female vice president. No, that's not a qualification to be president. And to be vice president, you have to be qualified to be president. And so she conveniently ticked all the boxes. She was female. She is either black or Indian, depending on which suits her purposes on a particular day. And, you know, we gloss over the fact that she clearly had a quite a prosperous upbringing. But because she has the racial bona fides, then we just assume she was terribly poor. Right? Yeah. And she talks the talk on the hard left. They're very happy about her. The hard left is very happy about Biden's apparent frailty and his obvious age because they think they have got their woman in through the back door. Yeah. And they may well have. We shall see. I think the Kamala Harris side of this story is actually really important and really interesting. I mean, firstly, which I wanted to ask you about was firstly the process through which she was selected. So it was pretty obvious to people that in the presidential primary, she just wasn't going to get the support. She switched people off. She turned people off. She, people didn't like her voice. They didn't like her mannerisms. They thought she was quite snooty and, and she wasn't going to get many votes. And so instead Later on, she was snuck in as the VP candidate. But also, precisely that point you make, which I find actually quite chilling and insulting, which is that she was selected on the basis of her genes. And I think it's a really good insight into how patronizing, racially patronizing, and patronizing in terms of gender, identity politics can be. Because this is a woman who is incredibly accomplished, actually, in terms of having been chief prosecutor and attorney general in various other positions. And yet she's pushed forward on the basis of her her femaleness, her race, the fact that she's sassy. I find people's obsession with her sass really quite demeaning as well. So do you think the Kamala Harris story, the way in which this accomplished woman was promoted on the basis of things she didn't accomplish, i.e. she was born female and born a particular race, that really captures something rotten about identitarianism. Oh, absolutely. And it's insulting. You're quite right. And it doesn't give Kamala Harris as much credit as I think she probably deserves. I don't share her politics, but she's got an impressive career behind her. And to be implicitly told at the get-go that the reason you were chosen, and this is why everyone thinks you were chosen, is because of your race and sex. Well, it's deeply condescending. And let's face it, it's also racist and sexist. And this is typical of the entire identitarian movement, that in the name of anti-racism and equality for the sexes, they are sexist and racist. It's an irony that you don't have to dig very deep to find it. It's on the surface. So on Kamala Harris's style, you have a great line in a piece you wrote recently about how she strikes many people as superior, snide, and scornful. What do you think motivates those qualities on her part? I mean, is this a California thing, or is this part of the kind of elitism that lurks behind woke politics? What is it about her that has this style? And why does Biden and other people in the Democratic Party seem to think that she will be an attractive candidate to ordinary Americans? Well, I have to say, I share an allergic reaction to Kamala Harris's manner Mm. and her voice. And I don't know how much emphasis to give it. I don't think we should deal with political candidates purely on such superficial matters. 
I'm really torn. And I, I also can't exactly identify where it comes from. I would say kind of instinctively with my novelist cap on that she strikes me as someone who as a little girl had too many of her crayon drawings put on the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was always told she was special and beautiful and talented. And, you know, I, she, a, a little of that goes a long way. And a lot of that does something to how you think of yourself and therefore how you treat other people. Yeah. You know, some of it may be beyond her control. It's always a little mysterious what makes people who they are. And maybe she can't help it. I mean, maybe she can't help talking in a way that comes across to others as scornful and condescending and contemptuous. Yeah. And maybe she's always talked that way. I don't know. I don't know the woman personally. And I know how people who don't know you, if you are in public life, total strangers by the droves feel that they they do know you and form very fierce and sometimes quite hostile opinions about you on the basis of these little decorative aspects of yourself that you don't completely command. Yeah. And so in that sense, I'm sympathetic. What makes me most nervous is not just that, you know what, I'm not sure I'm really happy about having to listen to this woman on my TV news night after night. I can live with that. It's her politics that make me nervous. She ran an advert a couple of days before the election. It didn't get a lot of attention. I don't know where all it was viewed. And it was a, it was in a cartoon, which is also a little condescending, frankly. And it was all about the difference between equity and equality, which I'm not sure that on a dictionary level stands up. But I do know that in terms of its political usage, the ostensible distinction between those two words is being used to stand in for equality of opportunity versus equality of results. And this little cartoon of hers made it very, very clear that she thinks it's important to install in the United States equality of results. Now, I I didn't make this up. I'm not the first person to observe it, but equality of results is effectively totalitarianism. You can't have equality of results from on high without having total control over society. And, you know, that means the government tells you what jobs you can have, what school you can go to. And, you know, I always remember this Kurt Vonnegut story in which everyone's supposed to be equal. And so that the smart people wear headphones that interfere with their ability to think (laughs) and the athletic have to wear big weighted you know, suits so that they're awkward and can't move. You know, it goes on from there. Yeah. And that's a quality of results. Yeah. And we don't want it. Leading on from that, I wanted to ask you about the prospects for wokeness after what's happened in the US, because I'm torn on this. I can't decide if... The fact that Trump did far better than expected and the fact that the the Democrats were victorious with a centrist rather than a radical, I can't tell if that will help to temper and tame the woke excesses that we've seen over the recent years or if the defeat of Trump and the silencing or the presumed silencing of his supposedly racist backward supporters, if that might actually embolden 
woke campaigners and give them a spring in their step as they, you know, parade through the institutions and the universities and art galleries and political institutions, etc. What's your view on the fortunes of wokeness over the next few years? Will it get worse or could it possibly be tamed slightly by the the knowledge that there exists so many people who obviously don't like it. I think most people don't like it. Yeah. And the people who are neutral just don't know anything about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this extreme left platform is very unappealing. You know, I don't blame people who don't know anything about it and therefore don't have much of an opinion because I'm, I'm hopeful that they have a life. <laughs> <laughs> I have un- unfortunately have to absorb myself with what is often patent absurdity. And there's, there's a, a way in which when someone who is pushing something that is patently absurd gets you to spend the precious time of your life debunking it, they have won even if you have the most persuasive argument. And mm. that's been mm. something that I've been fighting about, fighting against in my life, because I'm just not sure how much time to give this nonsense. And it is, it's patent nonsense. But what's important to remember, which again, if you haven't been paying keen attention, is easy to miss this woke thing, for lack of a better word, they gave it to us. It was going on way before Trump became president. And Trump put it on rocket fuel, but it was going great guns before 2016. It had already taken over the universities. It was already making headway into corporations. I don't feel you and I have an obligation to predict the future. In fact, that's the big mistake that a lot of journalists make because of course everyone wants to hear oh you know you have this perspective if so you know surely you can tell us what what will happen and it's not our job yeah so we don't have to say what's going to happen but we can say that we don't have to be passive about the future and what happens and you know i'm certainly not going to assume that now that we've given the left in some measure what they wanted in the united states and they did not get the candidates they wanted so remember that that it's all going to go away. It's not. This is going to be a long war. Yeah. And you and I have been fighting it for years. And, you know, there's something in me that would love to be let off the hook and have it magically disappear so I can think about something a little more intelligent. But I'm not counting on it. Yeah, I think that's very wise. I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but I do find it incredibly fascinating. I want to ask you about Kamala Harris's pronouns because, and the reason I think this is very important is that arguably the most powerful woman in the world, or she is likely to become the most powerful woman in the world, declares her pronouns. And the reason I think that's significant is because, as you've just said, for the vast majority of people, this stuff either makes no sense or they don't know that it exists. And yet here we have this woman who looks set to be vice president of the United States, who tells people that she is she and her presumably rather than he and him. And the eccentricity of that view, the otherworldly nature of it, I think is something it's worth dwelling on for a bit. The notion that someone who will have extraordinary power, not just in the US, but around the world, would cleave to such bizarre, narrow, elitist ideologies as the declaration of one's pronouns. I think that bodes ill for the American Republic in the next few years? Well, I mean, nothing stops us from just finding it comical. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I resort to. The trouble the trouble with that response is that it's always the same joke and it gets old. 
So there are only so many times you're going to be rolling around on the floor in hilarity because somebody who is transparently a man just told you that they want to be known as he and him. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me roll my eyes. And I think it makes most people roll their eyes. As we both know, this kind of stuff, it is tribal signaling. You know, it's, I'm one of you, and it's meant to indicate that you share a, a set of beliefs. Yeah. But just by saying what your pronoun is, then, you know, you implicitly endorse trans activism and you cast doubt on the reality of sex, which is actually a lot to get into a pronoun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, let them. We can't stop people from saying, you know, what their pronouns are. I find it rather farcical, but it's it's all about a group identity and people trying to recognize each other. Okay, I want to talk to you about one of the things that I think concerns you most about a Biden administration, which is lockdown fanaticism and the possibility that under Biden, those kinds of things could get worse. And I want to start off by asking you about masks, because one of the things I found quite heartening about the Trump campaign over the past few weeks is, I mean, firstly, Trump is really the only leader of the Western world who openly said lockdowns are unscientific, who openly said lockdowns are destructive. He did this kind of mini speech saying lockdowns are really bad for the economy, they're really bad for people's health, and they don't make sense in terms of science which I've not heard from any other leader in the West. So that was striking in itself. He also had these huge rallies at which many people wore masks, but when Trump spoke, he didn't. And in contrast with that, Biden made a very ostentatious point of always wearing a mask. Sometimes he wore two masks, which is completely perverse. Do you think the mask phenomenon has become indicative of a deeper political current and those who are fearful and authoritarian are drawn to the mask as a kind of symbol of contemporary society, whereas those who are more keen to get back to normal see masks as an, as an unacceptable imposition. Well, especially in the absence of any persuasive scientific evidence that they significantly impede transmission of the virus, then they are clearly performing a different function. Part of it is a tribal function, especially in the United States because it's, it was like a vote for Biden button that you wear on your mouth. And it's a sign of a certain kind of sense of self-righteousness and virtuousness and communitarianism as opposed to individualism. And it's clearly a sign of conformism, right? And that yeah. gives me the creeps. There's been very little demand for any evidence that these things work. And there, there's been a kind of eager compliance amongst at least a subset of both U.S. and U.K. publics. I care about other people. And uh, do you care about other people? <laughs> and just the look of it, it gives me the chills, the look of an environment when everyone is wearing masks. It feels like I'm stuck in a real-life sci-fi novel. Yeah. And when these mandates are brought in, they're never brought in with any sunset clause. You know, when is this ever going to be over? And I have started having this creeping sensation we can maybe talk about the vaccine, but even with a vaccine, I can see us wearing masks through 2022, Yeah, if not indefinitely, because then they start just becoming what one does, what 
polite people do. Furthermore, whenever governments bring in regulations, how often do they rescind them? How long are we going to have these masks required by law in a set of circumstances? And there, there are some governments that are insisting that you wear them outside. And that's where, you know what, that's where you know this is bullshit. Yeah. This has nothing to do with disease. This is making sure that everyone walks around perpetuating a fearful environment making sure that no one ever forgets that as of March 2020, everything changed and can never go back to normal. Now, this is about social control, and it repels me. I think the wearing of masks outside is, is it terrifies me. I was in Spain a few weeks ago, and you have to wear we a mask. We just qualify for our listeners that there is no evidence of any communication of this disease yeah. in the great outdoors. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Absolutely. And it's completely crazy. The notion that when you're walking down the street and you're not communicating with anyone, you have to wear a mask is just completely and utterly perverse and chilling in terms of the authoritarianism of that. But just sticking with the mask thing for a little bit longer, some people underestimate or perhaps they don't care uh, how much is lost when people are wearing masks, how much is lost in terms of social life, in terms of connection. I mean, firstly, as you say, the jury is still out on the efficacy of masks in terms of transmission and infection. But also, social life, public life becomes completely different. You can no longer smile at the elderly lady that you walk past in the street. You can no longer smile at the person who holds the door open for you. You can barely hear anyone who speaks to you in a shop or in a in other in another public space. It has an incredibly destructive impact on the connection between people when they're outside in the world. I had an appointment with a doctor yesterday and I hadn't met him before. We were masked up and I was trying to explain something medically important. And I also needed to know who this guy was really and whether I could trust him because it, it's about surgery for pity's sake. So I was keenly aware of the fact that our ability to communicate was hugely impeded. Mm -hmm. So this is not just a matter of smiling at the little old lady <laughs> in, in a shop. Okay. I couldn't tell who he was yeah. and I couldn't communicate my situation, nor could I make myself seem trustworthy as a source of information about my own health. I could tell we didn't know who each other was. And we didn't know much better when the appointment was over than when it began. We could use the words, but a lot of your ability to communicate is, is nonverbal. It's not the actual words. It's in person. It's how you say them. It's, and your face says everything, right? Yeah. And all kinds of emotions like uncertainty, wryness, irony, anxiety. Basically all of them. I mean, you can express a little concern by furrowing your brow, but otherwise, I mean, maybe like you can widen your eyes in alarm, but your ability to communicate emotionally and with any nuance, and I'm talking about content, not just feelings, but content is incredibly impeded. Yeah. And it really angers me that there's a lot of better safe than sorry thinking on the mask thing. So it's like, oh, well, you know, we're not sure whether they 
they work. But just in case, I think all you people, you should wear masks all the time, you know, even when having sex, for pity's sake, because it might do some good, as if there's no price to be paid. Yeah. Actually, this is unbelievably destructive of social life. And if this were to go on for years, and we are potentially looking at it going on for years, then you are starting to tear at the fabric of cohesive social identity. You know, communities and cities and nations, we no longer deal with each other as as human beings. The the loss is fantastic. I think in terms of it going on for years, unfortunately, I agree with that, or it's certainly definitely a possibility. And I think that comes back to a point you made earlier, which is about the vaccine. And the thing that strikes me about the vaccine is that everyone's very excited. I think it's it's a good breakthrough. It was done very fast. It seems to be doing well in trials. But the idea that this will resolve the lockdown fanaticism and the authoritarianism we currently live under strikes me as a fantasy because I think one of the key problems is that the current situation we all find ourselves in, under house arrest, separated from each other, masked in public, these are expressions of, I think, pre-existing trends, which were simply exacerbated by the arrival of COVID. So one example, people had long desired to live in a safe space to hide themselves away from offensive words or offensive people or difficult people. People became obsessed with safe sex, the idea that you should never mix with another person unless you were completely and utterly protected. So a lot of those ideas had already existed for a long time. And I think they became exacerbated by COVID. So do you think one of the reasons the vaccine won't be the cure all for the current situation is because a lot of this is political. A lot of this is stuff that had been building up for years and has has exploded on the back of the COVID-19 crisis. I don't like to rain on parades because it was nice yesterday to have one day when it seemed as if we were actually getting some good news. But I don't know. I think I'm probably a parade rainer by <laughs> by nature. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm worried that the prospect of a vaccine could make this situation even worse. One of the strongest arguments against these lockdowns has been: Look, what's the endpoint? There, there's no way to get out of this. We have to learn to live with the virus because you cannot defeat a virus by government fiat. It doesn't work. We've had many diseases before and we've weathered their comings and goings and, and not closed down our societies. And now we, we've suddenly got a counter argument, which is, oh, yes, there is an end point. So we just have to hunker down and not infect each other until we all get vaccinated. Okay. In fact, I have already in the last 24 hours, because the announcement was only yesterday, heard some officials start talking about how, you know, even with a vaccine, you're still going to have to socially distance and you're you're still going to have to wear a mask. So they're already laying the groundwork for no, we're not actually going to get out of this. But penultimately, we're going to be told, now we've got a goal, right? So now we just have to not be social creatures. And this could take years. This is another process that can take years. When they are talking about maybe we'll go back to sort of normal in the spring, 
I mean, that's beyond optimistic, right? So there's this rollout of millions, if not billions. I mean, we're prospectively looking at inoculating the entire world. And how long is that going to take? I mean, do we not get to resume air travel until the entire nearly 8 billion people in the whole world has had two shots and the vaccine has to be kept at super cold temperatures? How long is this going to take? So I'm afraid that being given this false goal, I mean, or perhaps it is achievable. I I, I don't want to be that downer. Maybe it's possible to vaccinate the entire world and maybe it will work. But it will take so long that what we're setting up is a situation where government will feel they have the right to lock us down indefinitely because, you know, we just have to do it for a few more months. Yeah. Well, there will be nothing left of this country yeah. for if we do this for a few more months. The most optimistic scenario is that their vaccine works. We don't even know that. We're not through the trials. I mean, there's a little, there's a lot of jumping the gun here. We're trying to prevent a resurgence of COVID-19 a year from now, a year from now. Are we going to stay locked down for the next solid year? How much would that cost in uh, collateral damage? I don't want to go on and on because there are plenty of podcasts out there about the collateral damage of lockdowns. How much funny money is the government going to make up in that period of time? I actually find the vaccine thing a little scary. The one thing that I do hope about it is that maybe if it works some, just some, it will give us a kind of purification ritual (laughs) to get out of this, right? That's my optimistic scenario. That, I mean, lockdown, you and I know lockdowns don't work, only delay the spread of the virus at best, for the most part, don't even do that. But maybe having this, elaborate rollout gives us a kind of religious Mm. out, right? We have been cleansed. We've all taken communion and we've been forgiven. (laughs) One of the most striking things has been the absence of a breaking point. Maybe I'm being impatient or unrealistic, but over the past Six, seven months, I've been thinking to myself, when will the breaking point come? When will it become clear to a significant number of people that lockdowns are unsustainable? And the breaking point hasn't come, even though in the second lockdown in the UK, which we're currently living in, it's very different to the first lockdown, I feel. There are far more people on the streets, for example. Ignoring it. Yeah. And there are far more people ignoring it. And there have even been protests in Manchester and London. And hopefully, I really hope there will be more. But I've constantly wondered about the absence of the breaking point. So perhaps a vaccine will provide that religious revelation and we can move on to the other side. But in relation to that, I wanted to ask you, without necessarily going into the details of the collateral damage, but I wanted to ask you about why you think our government our governments, you know, across the Western world, why they were prepared to take action that was so obviously destructive? Why were they prepared to take action, which means that people will die from cancer that they otherwise wouldn't have died from, that businesses will collapse that otherwise would not have collapsed, that millions and millions of people across the Western world will have no jobs? What possessed them to think that this was an 
a, a reasonable course of action. You know, there's no question that the whole phenomenon is giant copycatting mm. from government to government. I have found this experience the most horrifying of my life. You know, none of these governments are making independent decisions. None of these governments are assessing cost benefit and the rapidity with which suddenly this is what you do. Yeah. Yeah. When you've got a, a disease th that kills some people. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we've never done this before. And suddenly overnight, it was almost literally overnight. It's like, oh, of course, we're going into lockdown, as if we've always said that. And, <laughs> and now that we're in a second one, it's like, oh, well, another lockdown. <laughs> I mean, for pity's sake, like eight months ago, we, no, we didn't use that word at all. Yeah. And nor did we ever imagine that that was the normal protocol for dealing with an outbreak of a foreign virus. Never, ever have we done this before. And suddenly it's just what we do. Yeah. And I find that horrifying on a governmental level. And I also find it horrifying on a public one. Yeah. In fact, if you just take a tiny step back, 2020 has witnessed two mass international hysterias. And they were only three months apart. Mm. Mm. And I, I'm thinking, what's happened? Now, I don't want to get on my high horse about social media. <laughs> I'm tired of blaming social media for everything. So I, I'd actually prefer another explanation, but I don't understand what's happening. And sometimes rather than because you want an answer, you know, grabbing the, the nearest one, because th then you have an explanation. It's better to stay within your own incomprehension. Yeah. I don't understand this. Yeah. I don't understand. I, do, I didn't understand why in South Korea they were marching for Black Lives Matter in June when they don't have any black people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what happened to them? Well, honestly, what happened to them? <laughs> it has nothing to do with them. And likewise, you know, the, the, the lockdown, this, this mania mm. spread within a few days all over Europe and on into the United States. And the larger phenomenon of manias going viral, if you will, and not like some popular song, but in a life-transforming way, you know, so that you start, you know, burning down cities in the United States, or you cease all social and commercial activity for months on end. These are not small things to be contagious. Absolutely. And I've had a very strong sense of mania gripping our societies over the past few months. And it has been actually at times just deeply disturbing. And I've had a very similar response to yours where I've thrown my hands in the air and said, I don't really understand what's going on right now. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, I think I might be a little bit more optimistic on this than you are. But I wanted to ask you about people's compliance with lockdown, because that's something that you've written about and spoken about over the past few 
months. And obviously, there's a difference between the United States and the UK. In the in the US, as you were saying earlier on, it was quite tribal from the very beginning. So, you know, wearing a mask and staying at home and complying with all the orders was something that decent upper middle class people did. But there was a significant- It's something that Democrats did. Democrats, exactly. But there was a significant section of society that took part in protests and said, we don't want to do this and we're not going to wear a mask and, and so on. But in the UK, there was a lot of compliance. But I wonder, what I wanted to ask you is, to what extent do you think this was a performative compliance? Because what's very interesting about polls, polling shows that most people support lockdown measures. But polling also suggests, and we all know that polls are incredibly unreliable at the moment, but polling also seems to suggest that people will get around the rules when they think it's necessary to do so. So the hopeful part of me thinks that in the UK situation, people are performing their compliance, but are secretly bristling at these rules and regulations. And at some point, that might give rise to a bit of a pushback. What do you think? Well, I think there's a lot of breaking the rules, if only because most people can't keep up with them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm constantly reading letters in the Daily Telegraph or something where people say, you know, I just discovered there's this thing I can't do, and and this is ridiculous. There was one in this morning's paper about how someone whose partner can't drive, and she's a a healthcare worker. So he has to drive her to work, but he's not actually allowed to leave his house to drive someone to work. It's not on the list of approved activities. And I'm thinking – Well, okay, that's a very good point to write in. But my point of curiosity is, are you actually not driving your partner to work (laughs) because it's against the rules? Yeah. Honestly? And I hope not. I mean, I think that in some ways the salvation here is people being sensible and self-interested. You know, no, I don't care if it's against the rules. It's The rules are stupid. Yeah. And I'm not going to obey them. You know, I'm going to do what I need to do. Full stop. And if you get that on a large enough level, then the law becomes an ass. But what I would be happier with, rather than just creeping noncompliance, is for people to do a little bit of homework and to realize how utterly destructive this approach to disease has become and to be more vocal about it. I realize that can be difficult because it's illegal to protest. But I think that there's a lot to be said for writing your MP and talking to your friends and neighbors when you're allowed to do that (laughs) and expressing your doubts about this approach. Because what we need is a groundswell of, of opinion to shift. We've got this weird circular irony here that the UK government is hyper aware of what popular opinion is. And yet, especially in relation to lockdowns, they created Mm. the popular opinion. So now they're enslaved to a popular opinion that they instilled in the population themselves, right? So that's a formula for unending hell. Yeah. And so if some pollster asks you what you think, you know, don't lie to them and say what you know that you're supposed to say. There was a really interesting moment on the news a few days ago, Channel 4, and there was a a woman whose cafe was going to have to close because of the lockdown, and she was asked whether she 
believed in the lockdown, whether she thought it was a good idea. And it was an interestingly extended moment because you could see in her face, she didn't answer right away, she could see in her face, she was deciding whether to tell the reporter what she thought or what she thought he wanted to hear. Yeah. Now, after that long hesitation, she said she didn't support the lockdown, but you could tell that she, there was no automatic. I mean, she knew what was expected of her on TV. She was supposed to say, of course. Yeah, it's great. So let's stop being shy yeah. about the fact that we think this is a load of bollocks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that process is precisely testament to a culture of intolerance that has grown up around anyone who is skeptical of lockdown. Because if you are skeptical of lockdown or opposed to lockdown, as I am and as you are, then you are instantly denounced as a a dangerous person. Your words could literally kill people and you are a granny killer and all the other stuff. But in relation to your description of it as a mania, which I think is is very apt, one thing I've been thinking, I, I think people like us, our major work on lockdown is still to come because I think what we're going to have over the next year or so, possibly even longer, is a lot of retrospective ass covering, a lot of retrospective justification of lockdown. So anything that goes right over the next year or two will be put down to the success of lockdown, even if it's transparently not the case. Or alternatively, or alongside that, I think we'll see a lot of people distancing themselves from their support for this incredibly destructive policy in the same way that, you know, it's very difficult now to find people who supported the invasion of Iraq, for example. And I think possibly with lockdown, we might have a similar situation. So do you think we have to steal ourselves for those kinds of discussions? Because I think there's going to be a lot of people conveniently selecting facts to make it look like it was fine for the Western world to pursue this deranged policy for an entire year. I don't know how long it's going to take to get the kind of perspective on this that I think we are at, at length going to have. I, yeah. I do genuinely believe that we will reach a point that everyone looks back on 2020 and says, what on earth were we thinking? <laughs> and they will feel the same puzzlement that I do. That's just like, how did this happen? How did we allow this to happen? One of the things that Boris Johnson should really start thinking about, which he's clearly not, is that he has to stop being so short-term in his political orientation. He thinks that we just have to keep everyone on board and make sure that conservatives do not ever take responsibility for a single hospital having patients in corridors, which, by the way, we have seen virtually every winter. Yeah. You know, I could replay that package on the news in my head over and over again. But by the time we reach something like 2024, the damage done by these lockdowns is going to be baldly apparent. Yeah. The the economic damage, the number of the businesses that have closed forever, the lousy tax take, the mind-boggling national debt, the fact that great cities of the world like London are, are a shadow of their former selves. Nobody's going to be talking about the disease anymore. They're going to be talking about what was done to this country. And there will be hell to pay at the ballot box. The only thing that, that conservatives are going to be able to say is, look, labor was just as ignorant 
but they weren't in power. So they're not going to have to take responsibility for it. Okay. My final question, just to bring it back to the US, which is where we started in relation to the lockdown, in relation to mask fanaticism, in relation to all those things that you and I are very concerned about. Do you have hope in the United States that there are significant numbers of people who are clearly unhappy with this situation? There are significant numbers of people who quite purposefully refuse to wear masks. And there are significant numbers of people who clearly either don't care about or are in a state of revolt against the kind of politics that people like you and me are concerned about. Is your view of the US, even though you're unenthusiastic about the person you voted for, is your view of the US a hopeful one or a pessimistic one? I think that broadly, Americans have redeemed themselves. Mm. That is in comparison to, to the British. Yeah. And I know I'm a guest of the nation, and I'm never supposed to say anything mean about Britons. <laughs> <laughs> and some of my best friends are British. <laughs> but, you know, when some of the first protests started in the, the U.S., when, when the lockdowns were brought in in certain states, and there were uh, people on the city hall steps and saying, you know, fuck this, mm. <laughs> basically. Mm. <laughs> We're not going to do it. And you can't, you can't take our civil liberties away. I was relieved. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know how effective it was going to be in getting those lockdowns rescinded. But at the same time, it was great to see a, a, a few people not just rolling over and taking it. It's like, oh, oh, we're not supposed to, to leave our house. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I won't. Let me know when I can go to the store. You know, it's just... It's humiliating. And, you know, with no evidence, these lockdowns were burned in with no evidence that they work. And I think that at least a few American populations have shown some moxie. I mean, there are places like Florida. Florida does not have a lockdown right now. It has very low death rate. You never hear about states like that. You only hear about the states that are where it's really taking off. And they're just going about their business. And they don't have a mask mandate. And I, you know, I've said it before, and and I guess I'll just make myself unpopular again. I have found the fact that the British have overly complied with this nonsense, have so little questioned the government propaganda. It's 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 very disappointing. You know, I do not think of the British as stupid. I am increasingly thinking of the British as instinctively authoritarian and conformist. Lionel Shriver, thank you very much. My pleasure. I always love talking to you, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.